Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Shantae Joseph. I'm a writer and broadcaster and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Out now. Bye. Last week, the global population hit 8 billion, officially at least. A woman at the Jose Fabella Hospital in Manila gave birth to the so-called symbolic 8 billionth baby. The healthy baby girl has been named Venus. Humans may have taken thousands of years to make it to 1 billion, but recently we've been growing at speed. The number of people in the world has tripled in just 70 years. The global population is predicted to keep growing to 10.4 billion, with booms in Egypt, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Ethiopia. The United Nations says more than half the projected population increase to 2050 will be in just eight countries. Half of them are in sub-Saharan Africa. But for some countries like Latvia, Lithuania, and Serbia, populations are actually already in decline. And as a species, we're also aging. In other words, not only will the overall population shrink, but the overall number of young people as well will be reduced significantly. And if that is confirmed, it would have a huge impact on the country's economic growth. Should we be worried? Or are there potential benefits to an older, smaller population? From The Guardian, I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Vigard Sherbeck, you're a professor in population and family health at Columbia University, and you recently published a book called Decline and Prosper about how we can adapt to a world with fewer children. 
Before we get to that, just give me a sense of how the global population has changed over the last uh, few hundred years. How have we reached this 8 billion figure? So the global population has uh, increased from a population of 1 billion in 1804 to a population of uh, 8 billion this year. So population growth has been fairly low in most of human history, for example, due to conflicts and wars and, and famines. We've only passed the second billion in uh, 1927. But the real change in population size has been driven by continuous mortality decline. In the last two centuries, a much greater share of the newborns grew up to become adults and be able to reproduce themselves. This century, we see a flattening out of the global population growth. Uh, we are likely to see a population increase to a level around 10 billion before we will see stagnation and eventual decline in the global population numbers. Vegard, it seems like population size raises concerns almost whatever it's doing, whether it's rising or falling. I mean, either we're going to irreparably damage the planet or there won't be enough young people to sustain the economies. These worries have been going on for a long time, right? This isn't something new that we're dealing with. Absolutely not. Population issues have been discussed throughout history and uh, across uh, societies. And the heyday of population concern was in the 70s with, uh, for example, the Population Bomb book by Paul Ehrlich with uh, widespread concern about uh, what future population growth would be like. Many of those concerns did not materialize, but we have seen considerable population growth occurring in recent decades. But at the same time, stagnation in many other parts of the world, particularly very low fertility in East Asia, parts of Europe, we see concerns about natural population decline. And much of those concerns consist of uh, fear about uh, economic implications, but also implications for political, military strength, political importance, uh, whether you are able to sustain social security systems, uh, health service provision in the face of an aging population. Okay, so there have been all these widespread general concerns, but it feels increasingly as if population size is something governments are worried about. China introduced its one-child policy in 1980 to reduce its rapidly growing population. Is this something governments actually care about? This is a fairly recent development that so many countries are concerned about the population. The United Nations have been carrying out surveys on what governments see as an optimal population size, whether they would like to increase or decrease their population or their fertility. In the 70s, there was actually a relatively small proportion of the world's governments that said they wanted to change their fertility level. Two-thirds did not have any wish to change fertility levels. But over time, there's been a strong increase in the proportion of countries that prefer to change population. High fertility countries would like to have fewer children and low fertility countries would like to have more children. But it's the most sensitive issue there is in a way. Telling people how many children they should have or not to have. I think uh, one should not tell people anything. It is important that people are well informed and they are able to make these type of decisions uh, on an informed basis and to make them themselves. Well, increasingly in a lot of places, take Europe and Japan, people are choosing to have fewer children. What's driving these declines? So key towards changes in fertility rates have, of course, been the spread of better and better contraceptives. For example, you have long-term acting contraceptives that were not available just a few years ago. But the reason why we use these contraceptives increasingly has been that uh, there's been an, a decreased preference for, for large family size. Having children is uh, increasingly costly in many countries. And at the same time, you have uh, 
different opportunities, especially for women. Uh, opportunities have changed tremendously with female education levels having increased rapidly in countries all over the world. Female labor opportunities have increased. The, the opportunity cost, how much you have to give up in terms of uh, foregone income or decreased career opportunities have increased, plus the norms for when you should have children, whether you should have children at all, or whether or the acceptance of choosing to have small families or, or choosing to be childless has increased in many parts of the world. In a lot of countries, we're also seeing the age of having first child go up, or certainly have in the, in the UK. Is that feeding into any of this? Oh, yeah, sure. Even if you have the same number of children, if you have children at a later point in time, if you have children uh, at an older age, this would um, lead to slower population growth than the case would be if you would have children at earlier ages. And also, if you start having children later, you tend to end up having few children. So that is a, a key reason why we see global fertility decline. So when we talk about lower fertility, we don't mean they're less fertile. They're just having fewer children, right? That is correct. But there's also a case that many women misconceive the opportunities for having children late. So in, say, in countries such as Denmark, sexual and reproductive education has been all about uh, avoiding having children. And now there's been an increased emphasis on fertility awareness, that one, if you'd like to have children, you, you should not start too late, basically. And uh, there's been a strong increase in the use of um, assisted reproductive technology services uh, because many women are unable to conceive without uh, support, basically. Inevitably, if people are going to have fewer children, the population there will start getting older. I mean, what are some of the concerns about an aging population? So the concerns uh, are widespread and uh, many <laughs> concerns, I think, are exaggerated. Aging is inevitable. It will happen all over the world. There are no exceptions and we will have to adapt. And I believe most countries are not adapting very well. We're not successfully changing our institutions and mindsets to deal with population aging. We have to, for example, deal with the fact that we might have a lower share of the population working unless we increase retirement ages and extend our working lives and also uh, increase the proportion of uh, women working, which is uh, still an issue in many countries. But we also have to stress the key response I would recommend in terms of dealing with low fertility. One, one should invest much more in health to keep a larger share of the population able to contribute and not to be dependent on, on uh, long-term care or health services. But there's huge variation in terms of how well we deal with aging. We had a study where we looked at the age at which uh, an average person from different countries would have the same health level as a global 65-year-old. And we found that it differed by more than 30 years across countries, where a person in Japan has really good health up until his or her mid-70s, while in a country such as Papua New Guinea, the same health level occurs in the mid-40s. If we have these aging societies and we see people, more and more people sort of not in the workforce, I mean, is that necessarily a problem? If we just have a, a less productive society, I mean, maybe that would mean we're using the planet's resources less intensively, that maybe we're producing less, we're, maybe more of us are involved in things like care work. Absolutely. I think um, you're right. And what people should do with their lives, that's uh, certainly an individual choice and also political choice, what one should incentivize, whether we, we should uh, encourage people to engage in, in uh, work that uh, increases consumption further or whether one should engage in other types of activities. 
And I think it's important to have that debate. Uh, I don't have the answer, but I do have uh, some answers. To be able to, for example, participate in voluntary work, one needs to maintain functional capacities, cognitive abilities, and uh, help levels to higher ages than uh, what many countries uh, are able to do today. Just carrying that on, Vigard, I mean, as the global 1% sort of continue to use up the world's resources more than, more than anyone else, there's going to be this pressure leading to sort of climate migration from these vulnerable, often more developing nations with higher populations of young people. I'm wondering if that's actually something that the more aging countries really need. First of all, the, the, if you look at the proportion of all individuals in, in the world who are migrants, it hasn't increased much over recent decades, in, in spite of the fact that gl the global population size has increased massively. But at the same time, the kind of uh, migration that would be needed to offset aging is uh, unrealistic. Uh, there was a study uh, coming out uh, a couple of dec decades ago on, on how the whole world would need to move to South Korea to offset aging. So it's, it's, it's not possible. And many of the countries that have chronologically younger age structures tend to experience poor health at a much younger age. Hence, there isn't so much variation in the world in terms of uh, age structures. So what you're saying is, even if countries get an influx of young migrants, that won't solve the issue of an aging population. And as you've already said, at some point this century, the global population is going to go into decline. So every society is going to have to think about aging. What do we need to do to prepare? What should we be thinking about now? One should prepare now. <laughs> That's the first issue. To age well, one probably has to start early in life. One has to start with the prenatal care, basically. One, one has to consider uh, how to uh, improve health of children, improve health of young people, incentivize people to maintain health from an early age, both uh, in terms of physical and mental health. Vegard, thanks for taking us through all this. Really good to have you on. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Thank you. Thanks again to Vegard Schierbeck. His book, Decline and Prosper, Changing Global Birth Rates and the Advantages of Fewer Children, is out now. The Guardian did a really fantastic series of articles beyond 8 billion on how the global population is changing. You can find a link to those on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. Our daily podcast Today in Focus also did a special episode on reaching 8 billion, looking at India's so-called youth bulge and asking how the planet can support a growing population. And they also just had a look at what happened at COP27 with Fiona Harvey. So check that out too. Search for Today in Focus wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. The producer was Madeline Finley. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producer was Georgia Moody. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. 
Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.